Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. My name is Becca Bissadolshensky, and I'll be your host guiding you as we take a deep dive into all things pelvic floor and research-based. Whether you're a pelvic newbie or a seasoned clinician, I'm here to help busy therapists listen through the Women's Health Study Guide. So if you're studying for the Women's Certified Specialist Exam or just interested in learning more about pelvic health research, we've got you covered. Last article in week two, which was focused on female athlete. This is on bone metabolism in adolescent athletes with amenorrhea, athletes with eumenorrhea, and control subjects. This is an article by Christo et al. Before we get started, week three and week four is focused on pregnancy and postpartum. You won't see any podcasts for articles in week three because that's based on the Erian textbook. I believe it's chapters 11 through 16 for a total of about 160 pages. Week four is going to start with Borg Stein in 2005, but before we get ahead of ourselves, let's finish up with week two and the female athlete review. This article was actually published in a pediatrics journal. Their objective and hypothesis was that despite increased activity, bone density would be low in athletes with amenorrhea compared with athletes with eumenorrhea and control subjects. They assume this because of associated hypogonadism would be associated with a decrease in bone formation and increases in bone resorption markers. The research was performed as there are few data points regarding bone metabolism in adolescent athletes with amenorrhea, particularly in comparison with non-athletic control subjects. Maximal bone mass accrual occurs between 11 and 14 years of age in girls, with 90% of peak bone mass being achieved by the end of the second decade. So this is why the time to optimize bone mineral density is early to middle adolescence, otherwise there can be some severe consequences. Major contributors to the rapid increase in bone mineral density in adolescents are the bone anabolic effects of increasing growth hormone and insulin-like growth factor 1 so that's IGF-1, those levels in early to middle puberty. Adolescence is a high bone turnover state with increased levels of markers of both bone formation and bone resorption, so levels of these markers decrease to adult levels in late puberty. Bone turnover marker levels have not been reported for adolescent athletes with amenorrhea. So we know that amenorrhea in athletes is associated with estrogen deficiency, which is theorized to affect bone mass. Even in adult athletes, strong associations between severity of menstrual dysfunction and low bone mineral density have been reported. So remember that that role of estrogen seems to be necessary for the bone anabolic effects of impact load exercise. These effects may not be occurring in athletes with amenorrhea. Another piece that we know is that it's possible that alterations in bone composition and nutritional status also contribute to impaired bone metabolism. BMI and lean mass are body composition measures that strongly predict bone mineral density in adolescents, as do levels of IGF-1, or that insulin-like growth factor, which is a nutritional marker. IGF-1 levels peak in middle puberty with an important bone anabolic effect, and low IGF-1 levels at this time may have significant negative effects on bone metabolism. The relationship between body composition, IGF-1 levels, and low bone mineral density in adolescents with amenorrhea has not been well examined, though. So let's get into the methods here. The subjects were all female athletes between 12 and 18 years old. There were 21 adolescent athletes who met the criteria for diagnosis of amenorrhea, and there were 18 adolescents with eumenorrhea, and 18 control subjects were enrolled in the study as well. 
Athletes with amenorrhea had a self-reported history of one of the following. One, more than four hours of aerobic weight-bearing training of the legs weekly. Two, more than 30 miles of running weekly. Or three, more than four hours of specific endurance training weekly for a period of more than six months. So we're thinking endurance, endurance, endurance. Athletes with amenorrhea had been amenorrheic for more than three consecutive cycles after initiation and regular menstruation for more than six or more months, or had not attained menarche by the age of 15.3 years old. For reference, 15.3 years old for getting your first um, menstrual cycle, that's two standard deviations away from the mean age of menarche in the United States. Athletes with eumenorrhea met the criteria for endurance athletes but did not have a history of amenorrhea or menarchal delay. Control subjects did not meet the criteria for endurance athletes and did not have a history of amenorrhea or menarchal delay. None of the subjects met the DSM-4 criteria for anorexia or bulimia, but this was also based off self-report as well as history from some care providers and psychiatrist interviews. Although they did note some form of disordered eating was noted for 15 of the athletes, of whom 13 were in the amenorrhea group and two were in the eumenorrhea group. Subjects were recruited through advertisements in area newspapers and mailings to pediatricians, adolescent medicine physicians, nutritionists, and therapists in the New England area. Exclusion criteria included any subject receiving hormonal therapy or medications known to affect bone metabolism, as well as subjects with other conditions that could cause hypogonadism and subjects with abnormal thyrotropin levels or elevated follicle-stimulating hormone levels, which is indicative of hypergonadotropic hypogonadism. So let's talk about what the experiment protocol looked like. All subjects were evaluated during an outpatient visit to the General Clinical Research Center of Massachusetts General Hospital. A measure of height was taken using an average of three measurements. Weight was measured on a single electronic scale with the subjects in a hospital gown and also in a fasting state. BMI was calculated using a standardized formula. Bone age was assessed by standardized methods and was determined by a single investigator who was a pediatric endocrinologist to minimize inter-observer variation. In addition to obtaining a complete history of exercise from the study subjects, a modifiable activity questionnaire validated for use in adolescence was also given. Just a note, this questionnaire didn't take into consideration the intensity of activity or metabolic equivalence and therefore does not provide a measure of energy expenditure. A food frequency questionnaire was given to determine daily calcium and vitamin D intake. Fasting levels were measured for IGF-1 and N-telopeptide, which is a type of type 1 collagen, a bone resorption marker, and the N-terminal propeptide of type 1 procollagen, which is a bone formation marker. They determined the duration of amenorrhea in postmenarchal athletes with amenorrhea as a surrogate market of gonadal status. The mean duration of amenorrhea was a range of 3 to 29 months. Now for bone density measurements, the lumbar spine, the hip, and the whole body bone mineral density and bone mineral content values and body composition measures, including fat mass and lean mass were measured. So a lot of things are measured. The coefficients for variation for lumbar spine and whole body bone mineral density were 1.1% and 0.8%. And those for fat and lean mass were 2.1% and 1% respectively. For biomechanical measurements, Baseline characteristics they found was that athletes with amenorrhea did not differ from athletes with eumenorrhea and control subjects with respect to chronological age or bone age. Height and height Z scores did not differ within groups. 
Athletes with amenorrhea had a significantly lower BMI value compared to athletes with eumenorrhea and control subjects. Fat mass was also lower in athletes with amenorrhea than in athletes with eumenorrhea and in control subjects. Lean mass was higher in athletes with eumenorrhea than in athletes with amenorrhea and control groups. And lean mass ratios were actually not considered statistically significant, but I just wanted to add that in there. Activity scores were greater for athletes with amenorrhea and athletes with eumenorrhea compared to control subjects, which were kind of expected. The IGF-1 levels were lower in athletes with amenorrhea compared to control subjects. Menarchal age trended higher in athletes with amenorrhea than in athletes with eumenorrhea and control subjects as well. Athletes with amenorrhea reported greater calcium and vitamin D intake than did athletes with eumenorrhea and control subjects, primarily though through increased use of supplements. When looking at bone density, athletes with amenorrhea had significantly lower lumbar bone mineral density and bone mineral density Z-scores compared with athletes with eumenorrhea and control subjects. Lumbar bone mineral density Z-scores below negative 1 were observed for 38% of athletes with amenorrhea compared to only 11% of athletes with eumenorrhea and 11% of control subjects. Overall, bone density measures were higher in athletes with eumenorrhea than in control subjects, but these differences did also not reach a statistical significance. Now, the levels of bone formation markers and the bone resorption markers were significantly lower in athletes with amenorrhea compared to control subjects. The research then removed five athletes with amenorrhea with the lowest BMI and five eumenorrhea athletes with the highest BMI, just to kind of take out some of those outliers, right? Now, once removing these outliers, they made sure that the groups also did not differ in activity scores, age, or IGF-1 levels. The primary differences between the groups was therefore the presence or the absence of amenorrhea or hypogonadism. Amenorrheic athletes had a lower bone mineral density in the lumbar spine, the hips, and the whole body compared to eumenorrheic athletes. They also compared athletes with amenorrhea with a history of disordered eating to the athletes with amenorrhea without a history of disordered eating, and they found no differences in bone mineral density between the subgroups. These researchers demonstrated findings to support that there are lower bone density measures at the spine and the whole body in adolescent athletes with amenorrhea. So this is compared again with those athletes with eumenorrhea and some control subjects. Amenorrheic athletes also show lower bone mineral density at the hip compared to athletes with eumenorrhea. Important independent predictors of bone mineral density measures included body composition parameters such as lean mass and BMI Z-scores, levels of the IGF-1, which is a surrogate marker of nutritional status, and diagnostic category, so athletes with amenorrhea, athletes with eumenorrhea, or control subjects. For athletes with amenorrhea, duration of amenorrhea was an independent inverse predictor of bone density controlling for the IGF levels, body composition, and other measures. Athletes with amenorrhea have a lower bone mineral density not only in comparison with athletes with eumenorrhea, but also in comparison with non-athletic control subjects with normal menstruation. Therefore, in addition to the beneficial effects of exercise on bone density being lost in girls who develop amenorrhea, Amenorrhea may actually be deteriorous to bone health. Somewhat lower levels of bone turnover markers in athletes with eumenorrhea than in control subjects might be related to a somewhat lower IGF-1 level in athletes with eumenorrhea. However, those data really need to be confirmed in future studies. 
Some limitations included that they didn't look at estradiol, and they did this purposefully. They noted future studies may want to look into estrogen and other hormones known to affect bone density, such as cortisol levels, thyroid hormone levels, and some of those appetite-regulating peptides. We met some of those peptides in a prior article, so bonus points if you remember ghrelin. They noted that there was a lack of details regarding nutritional intake and daily energy expenditure in our subjects for the intake assessments as well. Another limitation is that it's important to obtain history regarding lifetime duration of oligomenorrhea rather than just duration of amenorrhea as an indicator for gonadal status. So let's go over the take-home points of this research. That's going to include that one, this data indicates that amenorrhea in athletes negates the beneficial effects of weight-bearing exercise on bone mass and may in fact have a deterious effect on bone. Two, this emphasizes the importance of optimizing nutritional and menstrual status in athletes. And three, there are significant alterations in bone metabolism that occur in adolescent athletes with amenorrhea compared to those athletes with eumenorrhea and control subjects. So that's it for week two, everyone. Hopefully you're not too lost in the sauce of hormones and all these um, comparisons of the control subjects, eumenorrheic and amenorrheic athletes. This article was kind of hard to follow in all of the information, but I think the take-home points are really strong in noting clinically what's important. I watch so many YouTubes on the hormone cascades targeting medical students, so while they might be more detailed than you need to take the exam and understanding the processes that we educate within our scope of practice, I found them really helpful. More specifically, there was a YouTuber named Armando Hasidungan, and I'm sorry if I said your name wrong, Armando, but he explains and draws out the hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis, the general thyroid gland and the hormones, and he was just super helpful for pregnancy hormones during week three and four. So Armando was a browser favorite of mine for a while there. (laughs) Okay, so corny end of the week pelvic joke time. What hormones does a fish use to swim in a house? endorphins. Don't sleep on the endocrine jokes. There are plenty of good ones out there. I'd even say it rivals the urology ones, which honestly is a tough category to beat sometimes. So next week is week three, and that's on pregnancy and postpartum. So there's two weeks on that. Week three, though, is all those chapter reviews within Erian. So week four continues on our pregnancy and postpartum journey (laughs) into an article on Borgstein in 2005 on the musculoskeletal aspects of pregnancy. So best of luck to all of you reading the chapters, and I hope to see you all listening at our next episode. Bye, everyone. (laughs)